fairy lights for fairy nights. It's time for your bedtime story. Brought to you by me, the Suze. Also brought to you by me, Zelda. Put your PJs on and sit down for a soothing bedtime story. It's not just the devil in the details. What else is lurking? Fairy lights for fairy nights. everyone it's fairy lights for fairy nights time we're here on the air I'm Susan and I'm here with my guest Michelle maybe she can hear me there she is so yeah we are we're finding all kinds of nice neat stories on the internet gosh there's so much stuff I didn't know I really didn't know I thought I thought, well, we'll find this and that, and that'll be interesting, and there may be some radio programs, and we'll find those, and then we'll call it quits. But no, the Internet Archives is filled with so much neat stuff. I mean, I, was, I think it's neat. I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and, then, and then when there's nothing on the Internet that you can find, we can create content as well. So there you we go. We can. We can create content anytime we want. Anytime you want, and you have, and uh, that's neat. And uh, if if you want to uh, record a story and send it to us here at Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights, you can do that. Why not? We'll hear your voice. Or if you want to be uh, a guest host here at Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights, <laughs> message me. <laughs> uh, so yeah. We're doing some some fun stuff, and um, we're on. We're we're gonna do the marvelous land of Oz. Um, are you a big Oz fan? Um, yeah, I read the books when I was a kid. I haven't read yeah. them in like three or four decades now, but yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, I, I I read them a long, long time ago, and I enjoyed it. Well, see, that's the thing. Like, I had some of them. I'd read them all, all the bomb ones at least, and. And gone into the next author a little bit. And um, so I thought, well, I just kind of started, if I found an inexpensive copy on eBay, I just bought it. So uh, some are good and some are neat and some are just paper books and paperbacks. That's fine. So I had them all and then I started, I was like, I'm going to read them. And then I got distracted by um, the, uh, the Water Fairies which is one of his books I've never read. So I'm still reading that. So I know it sounds crazy, but hey, I just want to I just want the information from the various books. So right. someone else reading it to me is fine. Like um I think it's also encyclopedias at, at, not not encyclopedias, but but guides, like a guide to Oz. There probably is something like that out there. As oh, well. I have it. I have it. It's called um, The Who's Who of Oz. But that's just okay. the characters. I mean, so if there's a character and you look up the character, it'll show a picture of them. An adorable picture of them. I love the pictures. But um, I'm just saying it's just, for some reason, true confession, I'm a Gemini. I'm reading ten books at once. It's ridiculous, I know. But... This way, I, if, if I listen to this, somebody reading it to me, I'm going to get it done. <laughs> I 
So reading 10 books at once is ridiculous. I know it is. I tried to finish a lot of them, but oh, well. Yeah, I'm an Aquarius. I'm not sure what that means. All I know is that I pick up a book and I will get it done within two hours. Really? Oh, good for you. (laughs) That's awesome. You're an air sign. Let me tell you about you. Um, we're a lot. You're a lot like Gemini. Only you're. Um, you can be more dogged, more starting things, more finishing things. That's fine. You're an idealist. Well, anyway, you don't want to know. If you want to know, if you want to know more about your sign, <laughs> I don't know. All I know is I'm balanced out really well with Miles. He's a Libra, so there you go. Oh yeah, he's supposed to be the one to balanced. I've got a lot of Libras in my life, and I've got a lot of Aquarius signs. Guess what? We're all air signs. We like to talk and we like to radio because it's about communications and and fun stuff and, and getting people to talk to each other and good stuff. So, yeah. And stories because stories are communication from past yes. centuries and, de- and decades. And, and yeah, that's why I was an English major because I love a story. I don't know why. I love to... You know, but sometimes the news is too depressing. And today was a good day for justice. And but I, I think I think it's it's because stories mm-hmm. they are a common quality throughout everyone. Yeah, every people race, want to tell stories. You know, every yeah. every uh, ethnic uh, um, ethnic person yeah. has their stories, and they all have a very startling component, and they're always interwoven. Yeah. And they want, they want to tell us something about people, about society, about how society and people work together. Um, and when you read stories you enjoy, it's like submersing yourself in a world you enjoy. Um, right. Yeah. But yeah, I have had books that I've started and not been able to put down until I finish, but those are few and far between. Most of them, I'm like, meh, meh. But, um... Some I'm more obsessive with. But um, as a small child, the teacher would be like, would you stop reading these books? And the books I was reading was, you know, Land of Oz. The Marvelous Land of Oz. All the Oz books. Because I was just like, this teacher's boring me. I'm going to put the book under my desk and read it. Which is like kind of, you know, you put the book under your desk anyway. But um, I'm going to do, we're going to do chapter five of The Marvelous Land of Oz and chat about it briefly and then on to another, another wacky story. Okay? Sounds good. All right, let's do this. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE MARVELOUS LAND OF OZ by L. Frank Baum CHAPTER V THE AWAKENING OF THE SAWHORSE The sawhorse, finding himself alive, seemed even more astonished than Tip. He rolled his knotty eyes from side to side, taking a first wondering look of the world in which he had now so important an existence. Then he tried to look at himself, but... He had indeed no neck to turn, so that in the endeavor to see his body he kept circling round and round without catching even a glimpse of it. His legs were stiff and awkward, for there were no knee joints in them, 
so that presently he bumped against Jack Pumpkinhead and set that personage tumbling upon the moss that lined the roadway. Tip became alarmed at this accident, as well as the persistence of the sawhorse in prancing around in a circle, so he called out, Whoa! Whoa there! The sawhorse paid no attention whatever to this command, and the next instant brought one of his wooden legs down upon Tip's foot so forcibly that the boy danced away in pain to a safer distance. From there he again yelled, Whoa! Whoa, I say! Jack had now managed to raise himself to a sitting position, and he looked at the sawhorse with much interest. I don't believe the animal can hear you, he remarked. I shout loud enough, don't I? to answer Tip angrily. Yes, but the horse has no ears, said the smiling pumpkin head. Sure enough, exclaimed Tip, noting the fact for the first time. How then am I going to stop him? At that instant, the sawhorse stopped himself, having concluded it was impossible to see his own body. He saw Tip, however, and came close to the boy to observe him more fully. It was really comical to see the creature walk, for it moved the legs on its right side together and those on its left side together as a prancing horse does, and that made its body rock sideways like a cradle. Tip patted it upon its head and said, Good boy, good boy, in a coaxing tone, and the sawhorse pranced away to examine with its bulging eyes the form of Jack Pumpkinhead. I must find a halter for him, said Tip, and having made a search in his pocket, he produced a roll of strong cord. Unwinding this, he approached the sawhorse and tied the cord around its neck, afterward fastening the other end to the, a large tree. The sawhorse, not understanding the action, stepped backward and snapped the string easily. But it made no attempt to run away. He's stronger than I thought, said the boy, and rather obstinate, too. Why don't you make him some ears? asked Jack. Then you can tell him what to do. That's a splendid idea, said Tip. How did you happen to think of it? Why, I didn't think of it, answered the pumpkin head. I didn't need to, for it's the simplest and easiest thing to do. So Tip got out his knife and fastened some ears out of the bark of a small tree. I mustn't make them too big, he said as he whittled, or our horse would become a donkey. How is that? inquired Jack from the roadside. Why, a horse has bigger ears than a man, and a donkey has bigger ears than a horse, explained Tip. Then, if my ears were longer, would I be a horse? asked Jack. My friend, said Tip gravely, you'll never be anything but a pumpkin head, no matter how big your ears are. Oh, returned Jack, nodding, I think I understand. If you do, you're a wonder, remarked the boy. But there's no harm in thinking you understand. I guess these ears are ready now. Will you hold the horse while I stick them on? Certainly, if you'll help me up, said Jack. So Tip raised him to his feet, and the pumpkin head went to the horse and held its head while the boy bored two holes in it with his knife blade and inserted the ears. They make him look very handsome, said Jack, admiringly. But those words, spoken close to the sawhorse, and being the first sounds he had ever heard, so startled the animal 
Then he made a bound forward and tumbled Tip on one side and Jack on the other. Then he continued to rush forward as if frightened by the clatter of his own footsteps. Whoa! shouted Tip, picking himself up. Whoa, you idiot! Whoa! The sawhorse would probably have paid no attention to that, but just then it stepped a leg into a gopher hole and stumbled head over heels to the ground, where it lay upon its back, frantically waving its four legs in the air. Tip ran up to it. "'You're a nice sort of horse, I must say,' he exclaimed. "'Why didn't you stop when I yelled, whoa?' "'Does the whoa mean to stop?' asked the sawhorse in a surprised voice as it rolled its eyes upward to look at the boy. "'Of course it does,' answered Tip. "'And a hole in the ground means to stop also, doesn't it?' continued the horse. "'To be sure, unless you step over it,' said Tip. "'What a strange place this is!' the creature exclaimed, as if amazed. "'What am I doing here, anyway?' "'Why, I've brought you to life,' answered the boy. "'But it won't hurt you any, if you mind me, and do as I tell you.' "'Then I will do as you tell me,' replied the sawhorse humbly. "'But what happened to me a moment ago? I don't seem to be just right some way.' "'You're upside down,' explained Tip. "'But just keep those legs still a minute, and I'll set you right side up again.' "'How many sides have I?' asked the creature wonderingly. "'Several,' said Tip briefly. "'But do keep those legs still.' The sawhorse now became quiet, and held its legs rigid, so that Tip, after several efforts, was able to roll him over and set him upright. "'Ah, I seem all right now.' said the queer, calm animal with a sigh. "'One of your ears is broken,' Tip announced after a careful examination. "'I'll have to make a new one.' Then he led the sawhorse back to where Jack was vainly struggling to regain his feet, and after assisting the pumpkin head to stand upright, Tip whittled out a new ear and fastened it to the horse's head. "'Now,' he said, addressing his steed, "'pay attention to what I'm going to tell you. Whoa!' means to stop. Get up means to walk forward. Trot means to go as fast as you can. Understand? I believe I do, returned the horse. Very good. We are all going on a journey to the Emerald City to see His Majesty the Scarecrow, and Jack Pumpkinhead is going to ride on your back so he won't wear out his joints. I don't mind, said the horse. Anything that suits you suits me. Then Tip assisted Jack to get upon the horse. "'Hold on tight,' he cautioned, "'or you may fall off and crack your pumpkin head.' "'That would be horrible,' said Jack with a shudder. "'What shall I hold on to?' "'Why, hold on to his ears,' replied Tip after a moment's hesitation. "'Don't do that,' remonstrated the sawhorse, "'for then I can't hear.' That seemed reasonable, so Tip tried to think of something else. "'I'll fix it,' said he at length. He went into the wood and cut a short length of limb from a young, stout tree. One end of this he sharpened to a point, and then he dug a hole in the back of the sawhorse just behind its head. Next he brought a piece of rock from the road and hammered the post firmly into the animal's back. "'Stop! Stop!' shouted the horse. "'You're jarring me terribly.' "'Does it hurt?' asked the boy. "'Not exactly hurt,' answered the animal. 
but it makes me quite nervous to be jarred. Well, it's over now, said Tip encouragingly. Now, Jack, be sure to hold fast to this post, and then you can't fall off and get smashed. So Jack held on tight, and Tip said to the horse, Get up! The obedient creature at once walked forward, rocking from side to side as he raised his feet from the ground. Tip walked beside the sawhorse, quite content with this addition to their party. Presently he began to whistle. What does that sound mean? asked the horse. Don't pay any attention to it, said Tip. I'm just whistling, and that only means I'm pretty well satisfied. I'd whistle myself if I could push my lips together, remarked Jack. I fear, dear father, that in some respects I'm sadly lacking. After journeying on for some distance, the narrow path they were following turned into a broad roadway paved with yellow brick. By the side of the road, Tip noticed a signpost that read, Nine miles to Emerald City. But it was now growing dark, so he decided to camp for the night by the roadside, and to resume the journey next morning by daybreak. He led the sawhorse to a grassy mound upon which grew several bushy trees, and carefully assisted the pumpkin head to alight. I think I'll lay you on the ground overnight, said the boy. You'll be safer that way. How about me? asked the sawhorse. It won't hurt you to stand, replied Tip, and as you can't sleep, you may as well watch out and see that no one comes near to disturb us. Then the boy stretched himself upon the grass beside the pumpkin head, and being greatly wearied by the journey, was soon fast asleep. End chapter five. All right. End of chapter five. Hmm. I'm hearing that some people can barely hear us. Oh, goodness. What to do? Um, I'm thrown out of Discord. But that doesn't mean I'm not recording, so that's fine. Um, turned it off, turned it on to see if it would rework. But, um... Yeah, I think that was a good story, The Awakening of the Sawhorse. He didn't have any ears, so they just carved him some ears out of the tree, and um, Tim whittled him, Tip whittled him some new ears. So that's good. I think it's a good story. It's kind of going slowly, chapter by chapter. But it's just chapter five of the marvelous land of Oz. So I'm going to go into another story right now, uh, one that Michelle approved of, called "The Raven," and see if we can uh, get some of our technical difficulties with uh, Discord in better shape. But here you go. This is a LibriVox recording. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. 
That's L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X dot O-R-G. Fairy Tales by the Brothers Grimm The Raven There was once a queen who had a little daughter still too young to run alone. One day the child was very troublesome and the mother could not quiet it, do what she would. She grew impatient and seeing the ravens flying around the castle, she opened the window and said, I wish you were a raven and would fly away. Then I should have a little peace. Scarcely were the words out of her mouth when the child in her arms was turned into a raven and flew away from her through the open window. The bird took its flight to a dark wood and remained there for a long time. And meanwhile the parents could hear nothing of their child. Long after this a man was making his way through the wood when he heard a raven calling, and he followed the sound of the voice. As he drew near, the raven said, I am by birth a king's daughter, but am now under the spell of some enchantment. You can, however, set me free. Oh, what am I to do? he asked. She replied, Go farther into the wood until you come to a house wherein lives an old woman. She will offer you food and drink, but you must not take of either. If you do, you will fall into a deep sleep and will not be able to help me. In the garden behind the house is a large tan heap, and on that you must stand and watch for me. I shall drive there in my carriage at two o'clock in the afternoon for three successive days. The first day it will be drawn by four white, the second by four chestnut, and the last by four black horses. But if you fail to keep awake and I find you sleeping, I shall not be set free. The man promised to do all that she wished. But the raven said, Alas, I know even now that you will take something from the woman and be unable to save me. The man assured her again that he would on no account touch a thing to eat or drink. When he came to the house and went inside, the old woman met him and said, Poor man, how tired you are. Come in and rest, and let me give you something to eat and drink. No, answered the man. I will neither eat nor drink. But she would not leave him alone, and urged him, saying, If you will not eat anything, you might take a draught of wine. One drink counts for nothing. And at last he allowed himself to be persuaded, and drank. 
As it drew towards the appointed hour, he went outside into the garden and mounted the tan heap to wait for the raven. Suddenly a feeling of fatigue came over him, and unable to resist it, he lay down for a little while, fully determined, however, to keep awake. But in another minute his eyes closed of their own accord, and he fell into such a deep sleep that all the noises in the world would not have awakened him. At two o'clock the raven came driving along, drawn by her four white horses. But even before she reached the spot, she said to herself, sighing, I know, he has fallen asleep. When she entered the garden, there she found him, as she feared, lying on the tan heap, fast asleep. She got out of her carriage and went to him. She called him and shook him, but it was all in vain. He still continued sleeping. The next day at noon, the old woman came to him, again with food and drink, which he at first refused. At last, overcome by her persistent entreaties that he would take something, he lifted the glass and drank again. Towards two o'clock, he went into the garden and on to the tan heap to watch for the raven. He had not been there long before he began to feel so tired that his limbs seemed hardly able to support him and he could not stand upright any longer. So again he lay down and fell fast asleep. As the raven drove along her four chestnut horses, she said sorrowfully to herself, I know he has fallen asleep. She went as before to look for him, but he slept, and it was impossible to awaken him. The following day the old woman said to him, What is this? You are not eating or drinking anything. Do you want to kill yourself? He answered, I may not and will not either eat or drink. But she put down the dish of food and the glass of wine in front of him, and when he smelt the wine, he was unable to resist the temptation and took a deep draught. When the hour came round again, he went, as usual, on to the tan-heap in the garden to await the king's daughter, but he felt even more overcome with weariness than on the two previous days, and throwing himself down, he slept like a log. At two o'clock the raven could be seen approaching, and this time her coachman and everything about her, as well as her horses, were black. She was sadder than ever as she drove along and said mournfully, I know he has fallen asleep and will not be able to set me free. She found him sleeping heavily, and all her efforts to awaken him were of no avail. Then she placed beside him a loaf and some meat and a flask of wine, 
of such a kind that, however much he took of them, they would never grow less. After that, she drew a gold ring on which her name was engraved off her finger and put it upon one of his. Finally, she laid a letter near him in which, after giving him particulars of the food and drink she had left for him, she finished with the following words. I see that as long as you remain here, you will never be able to set me free. If, however, you still wish to do so, come to the golden castle of Stromberg. This is well within your power to accomplish. She then returned her carriage and drove to the golden castle of Stromberg. When the man awoke and found that he had been sleeping, he was grieved at heart and said, She has no doubt been here and driven away again, and it is now too late for me to save her. Then his eyes fell on the things which were lying beside him. He read the letter and knew from it all what had happened. He rose up without delay, eager to start on his way and to reach the castle of Stromberg, but he had no idea in which direction he ought to go. He traveled about a long time in search of it, and came at last to a dark forest, through which he went on walking for fourteen days, and still could not find a way out. Once more the night came on, and worn out he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. Again the next day he pursued his way through the forest, and that evening, thinking to rest again, he lay down as before. But he heard such a howling and wailing that he found it impossible to sleep. He waited till it was darker and people had begun to light their houses. And then, seeing a little glimmer ahead of him, he went towards it. He found that the light came from a house which looked smaller than it really was from the contrast of its height with that of an immense giant who stood in front of it. He thought to himself, If the giant sees me going in, my life will not be worth much. However, after a while he summoned up courage and went forward. When the giant saw him, he called out, It is lucky for that you have come, for I have not had anything to eat for a long time. I can have you now for my supper. I would rather you let that alone, said the man, for I do not willingly give myself up to be eaten. If you are wanting food, I have enough to satisfy your hunger. If that is so, replied the giant, I will leave you in peace. I only thought of eating you because I had nothing else. So 
they went indoors together and sat down, and the man brought out the bread, meat, and wine, which, although he had eaten and drunk of them, were still unconsumed. The giant was pleased with the good cheer, and ate and drank to his heart's content. When he had finished his supper, the man asked him if he could direct him to the castle of Stromberg. The giant said, I will look on my map. On it are marked all the towns, villages, and houses. So he fetched his map and looked for the castle, but could not find it. Never mind, he said. I have larger maps upstairs in the cupboard, and we will look on those. But they searched in vain, for the castle was not marked even on these. The man now thought he should like to continue his journey, but the giant begged him to remain for a day or two longer until the return of his brother, who was away in search of provisions. When the brother came home, they asked him about the castle of Stromberg, and he told them he would look on his own maps as soon as he had eaten and appeased his hunger. Accordingly, when he had finished his supper, they all went up together to his room and looked through his maps. But the castle was not to be found. Then he fetched other older maps, and they went on looking for the castle until at last they found it but it was many thousands of miles away. How shall I be able to get there? asked the man. I have two hours to spare, said the giant, and I will carry you into the neighborhood of the castle. I must then return to look after the child who is in our care. The giant thereupon carried the man to within about a hundred leagues of the castle, where he left him, saying, You will be able to walk the remainder of the way yourself. The man journeyed on day and night till he reached the golden castle of Stromberg. He found it situated, however, on a glass mountain, and looking up from the foot he saw the enchanted maiden drive round her castle and then go inside. He was overjoyed to see her and longed to get to the top of the mountain, but the sides were so slippery that every time he attempted to climb he fell back again. When he saw that it was impossible to reach her, he was greatly grieved and said to himself, I will remain here and wait for her. So he built himself a little hut, and there he sat and watched for a whole year. And every day he saw the king's daughter driving round her castle, but still was unable to get nearer her. Looking out from his hut one day, he saw three robbers fighting, and he called out to them, God be with you. They stopped when they heard the call, but looking round and seeing nobody, they went on again with their fighting, 
which now became more furious. "'God be with you,' he cried again, and again they paused and looked about, but seeing no one, went back to their fighting. A third time he called out, "'God be with you,' and then, thinking he should like to know the cause of dispute between the three men, he went out and asked them why they were fighting so angrily with one another. One of them said that he had found a stick, and that he had but to strike it against any door through which he wished to pass, and it immediately flew open. Another told him that he had found a cloak which rendered its wearer invisible, and the third had caught a horse which would carry its rider over any obstacle, and even up the glass mountain. They had been unable to decide whether they would keep together and have the things in common, or whether they would separate. On hearing this, the man said, I will give you something in exchange for those three things, not money, for that I have not got, but something that is far more of value. I must first, however, prove whether all you have told me about your three things is true. The robbers, therefore, made him get on the horse, and handed him the stick and the cloak, and when he had put this around him, he was no longer visible. Then he fell upon them with the stick, and beat them one after another, crying, There, you idle vagabonds, you have got what you deserve. Are you satisfied now? After this, he rode up the glass mountain. When he reached the gate of the castle, he found it closed. But he gave it a blow with his stick, and it flew wide open at once, and he passed through. He mounted the steps and entered the room where the maiden was sitting with a golden goblet full of wine in front of her. She could not see him, for he still wore the cloak. He took the ring which she had given him off his finger and threw it into the goblet so that it rang as it touched the bottom. That, that is my own ring, she exclaimed, and if that is so, the man must also be here who is coming to set me free. She sought for him about the castle, but could find him nowhere. Meanwhile, he had gone outside again and mounted his horse and thrown off the cloak. When, therefore, she came to the castle gate, she saw him, and cried aloud for joy. Then he dismounted and took her in his arms, and she kissed him, and said, Now you have indeed set me free, and tomorrow we celebrate our marriage. End of The Raven
right. That's a lot, a lot of... By the way, this is the 30th podcast of Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights. And, uh... This is the first time we've kind of had major technical difficulties. Not even that the technical difficulties were that bad. Discord threw us out of the chat room. The podcast didn't... Streaming Lime didn't have a problem. But... I think there's an outage at the servers. Sometimes that happens. Yeah, well, I'm kind of a ludite. I don't really understand all the things, but I've figured out some things to to do this. Yeah, I've actually uh, learned recently that that term is not necessarily what we deem it to be a ludite. Well, I've looked it up, and it means someone that has problems with technology. Actually, so it doesn't. It means something Absolutely. bad. No, the the Ludites actually fought for oh, better jobs when well, when when the companies they were, were an trying actual to group of people. You're saying, yeah, they were they were a group of people that uh, were dealing with a techno technological age where the people who ran mm -hmm. the corporate the the companies yeah. thought they could get away with having machinery replace workers that were skilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and what that what happened then is those workers that were unskilled that were manning the machines got hurt and maimed and killed. Oh no. And the Lodites actually fought against that. They fought to have skilled laborers manning those machines to prevent yeah. that sort of injury. Yeah, injury. That makes sense. Have someone skilled with the machine not get killed on it on the first. Correct. Day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but like I said, I uh, I just looked at the definition of someone that fears technology and is frightened of it. But I'm trying to yeah. embrace it. I'm trying. I'm yeah, trying. well, technology is scary. I, I don't is. know a lot of the ins and outs. But, yeah. you know, um, instead of being afraid job, of it, I try to learn. My first real job was selling computer upgrades. Uh, doing cold calls and selling computer upgrades to big businesses. Oh, that's hard. It really was, but you were trying to. I was trying to find their needs and who needed a better computer. Basically, talking to people, finding out what their needs, and selling, sending them a salesperson that was competent. But um, yeah, because you know it's it's hard to know when you're large corporation filled with people need a better better AS400 anyway yeah yeah Foxfire we're just gonna jump in that tiny carriage that's what we need um but yeah so that was that was the raven that that one was the a grim fairy tale and it seemed to really meander I missed the beginning because of Technolo technological problems, but had trouble getting back into it. So, that's that. I'll be you actually had it open. Later. I was trying to read along with it just to oh, that's catch nice. up. So, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't give you anything ahead of time. <laughs> oh goodness. So that's my fault. My bad. But you know, I don't want you to read everything beforehand. You don't have to be that knowledgeable. Um, I'm kind of saying the things I've picked out. 
they're probably eh, probably um you know not too obscene not too uh, they're probably good for children they're you know they're fairy tales so the worst that could happen was you know they would not be too riveting and that's fine so but um i'm thinking about picking out another one and um how the dragon was tricked which is andrew lang which i'm a fan of and we were talking uh as am i before about his different fairy books and i kind of learned about these because i was doing um kind of doll libraries like i was um folding up and making little doll books and it was like the blue fairy book the yellow fairy book and i was like i want these you know so i was like i wonder if they're real books so i googled them and they are real books and i was like wow what a neat resource but the kind of um I was doing a, like a like making a little doll library, so it was kind of. I realized it kind of was reenacting the the turn of the century little library, and I'm like, oh, this is neat. I want a turn of the century little library. You know, some old books, some new books, yeah. some older books. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I had to originally come across the, uh, the Andrew Lang books at the at the local library when I was a oh, kid. Oh, really? And I wore those out by checking them out. So yeah, I, was so glad I did that. I did that, that I with the, get them the books. books. So yeah, yeah. I didn't know that there were so many colors. Good job. That wow. I didn't know. But anyway, let's go on. And uh, this is from the Pink Fairy book by Andrew Lang, and it's how the dragon was tricked. So this is a short one. So let's do this one. Section two of the Pink Fairy book. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elliot Miller The Pink Fairy Book by Andrew Lang How the Dragon Was Tricked From Kuteschke und Abenaschke Marchen von J. G. von Hahn, Leipzig, Inkelmann, 1864 Once upon a time there lived a man who had two sons. But they did not get on at all well together for the younger man was much handsomer than his elder brother, who was very jealous of him. When they grew older, things became worse and worse, and at last one day as they were walking through a wood, the elder youth seized hold of the other, tied him to a tree, and went on his way, hoping that the boy might starve to death. However, it happened that an old and humpbacked shepherd passed the tree with his flock, and, seeing the prisoner, he stopped and said to him, "'Tell me, my son, why are you tied to that tree?' "'Because I was so crooked,' answered the young man. "'But it has quite cured me, and now my back is as straight as can be.' "'I wish you would bind me to a tree,' exclaimed the shepherd, "'so that my back would get straight.' "'With all the pleasure in life,' replied the youth, "'if you will loosen these cords, I will tie you up with them as firmly as I can.' This was soon done, and then the young man drove off the sheep, leaving their real shepherd to repent of his folly. And before he had gone very far he met with a horse-boy and a driver of oxen, and he persuaded them to turn with him and seek for adventures. By these and many other tricks he soon became so celebrated that his fame reached the king's ears, 
and his majesty was filled with curiosity to see the man who had managed to outwit everybody. So he commanded his guards to capture the young man and bring him before him. And when the young man stood before the king, the king spoke to him and said, By your tricks and the pranks that you have played on other people, you have, in the eye of the law, forfeited your life. But on one condition I will spare you, and that is, if you will bring me the flying horse that belongs to the great dragon. Fail in this, and you shall be hewn in a thousand pieces. Well, if that is all, said the youth, you shall soon have it. So he went out and made his way straight to the stable where the flying horse was tethered. He stretched his hand cautiously out to seize the bridle, when the horse suddenly began to neigh as loud as he could. Now the room in which the dragon slept was just above the stable, and at the sound of the neighing he woke up and cried to the horse, "'What is the matter, my treasure? Is there anything hurting you?' After waiting a while the young man tried again to lose the horse, but a second time it neighed so loudly that the dragon woke up in a hurry and called out to know why the horse was making such a noise. But when the same thing happened the third time, the dragon lost his temper, and went down into the stable and took a whip and gave the horse a good beating. This offended the horse and made him angry, and when the young man stretched out his hand to untie his head, he made no further fuss, but suffered himself to be led quietly away. Once clear of the stable, the young man sprang on his back and galloped off, calling over his shoulder, "'Hey, dragon, dragon, if anyone asks you what has become of your horse, you can say that I've got him.' But the king said, The flying horse is all very well, but I want something more. You must bring me the covering with the little bells that lies on the bed of the dragon, or I will have you hewn into a thousand pieces. Is that all? answered the youth. That's easily done. And when night came, he went away to the dragon's house and climbed up onto the roof. Then he opened a little window in the roof and let down the chain from which the kettle usually hung and tried to hook the bed covering and to draw it up. But the little bells all began to ring, and the dragon woke and said to his wife, Wife, you have pulled off all the bedclothes, and drew the covering toward him, pulling as he did so the young man into the room. Then the dragon flung himself on the youth and bound him fast with cord, saying, as he tied the last knot, Tomorrow when I go to church you must stay at home and kill him and cook him, and when I get back we will eat him together. So the following morning the dragoness took hold of the young man and reached down from the shelf a sharp knife with which to kill him. But as she untied the cords, the better to get hold of him, the prisoner caught her by the legs, threw her to the ground, seized her, and speedily cut her throat, just as she had been about to do for him, and put her body in the oven. Then he snatched up the covering and carried it to the king. The king was seated on his throne when the youth appeared before him and spread out the covering with a deep bow. "'That is not enough,' said his majesty. "'You must bring me the dragon himself, or I will have you hewn into a thousand pieces.' "'It shall be done,' answered the youth. "'But you must give me two years to manage it, for my beard must grow so that he may not know me.' "'So be it,' said the king. And the first thing the young man did when his beard was grown was to take the road to the dragon's house, and on the way he met a beggar, whom he persuaded to change clothes with him and in the beggar's garments he went fearlessly forth to the dragon. 
He found his enemy before his house, very busily making a box, and addressed him politely. "'Good morning, your worship. Have you a morsel of bread?' "'You must wait,' replied the dragon, "'till I have finished my box, and then I will see if I can find one.' "'What will you do with the box when it is made?' inquired the beggar. "'It is for the young man who killed my wife, and stole my flying horse and my bed-covering,' said the dragon. "'He deserves nothing better,' answered the beggar, "'for it was an ill deed. "'Still, that box is too small for him, for he is a big man.' "'You are wrong,' said the dragon. "'The box is large enough even for me.' "'Well, the rogue is nearly as tall as you,' replied the beggar, "'and, of course, if you can get in, he can, "'but I am sure you would find it a tight fit.' "'Oh, there is plenty of room,' said the dragon, "'tucking himself carefully inside.' But no sooner was he well in than the young man clapped on the lid and called out, "'Now press hard, just to see if he will be able to get out.' The dragon pressed as hard as he could, but the lid never moved. "'It is all right,' he cried. "'Now you can open it.' But instead of opening it, the young man drove in long nails to make it tighter still. Then he took the box on his back and brought it to the king. And when the king heard that the dragon was inside, he was so excited that he would not wait one moment, but broke the lock and lifted the lid just a little way to make sure he was really there. He was very careful not to leave enough space for the dragon to jump out, but unluckily there was just room for his great mouth, and with one snap the king vanished down his wide red jaws. Then the young man married the king's daughter and ruled over the land. But what he did with the dragon nobody knows. End of How the Dragon Was Tricked Recording by Elliot Miller www.voiceofe.com Oh, goodness. So, should I put little bells on the blanket that goes on my bed so no one can steal them? Hmm. Maybe I will. Yep, how the dragon was tricked. Starts out with a brother tying a brother to a tree because he doesn't like him. Seems a, a little vicious. I mean, I, I don't really understand that. <laughs> yeah, we've got it more. Michelle's in the Discord. She's posting, but she's saying Discord is out. So maybe, maybe she's having trouble hearing me. Maybe I'm not recording. Maybe I am recording now. And I wasn't before. Because I wasn't in the recording studio. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's confusing. But, um... Did you ever tie your brother to a tree, Michelle? Because you were mad at him? And leave no, him there I to never... starve? It just seems a little brutal. I don't know. Yeah, proves that the younger brother was a dick anyway. Look at how he went through <laughs> life after that. Yeah, he doesn't seem like a really, really nice person. Oh, gosh. No. These people. Vicious, horrible, horrible people. But anyway, another story. This time about a dragon. We could go on to some more stories about cats or Oz or anything, really. Anything yeah, whatever we wanted you wish. To do. It's halfway through. It's the halfway point. They haven't even played any promos. Oh, darn. Oh well, we'll get to them. 
but yeah um let's see hmm let's go back to Oz play uh top of the hour well it's not quite top of the hour but it's close enough so let's play the second Oz story okay. second Oz chapter chapter six of the marvelous land of Oz so uh what's your, who's your favorite character offhand I mean if you think of one I won't quote you. you. You probably think of a better one later, but one of my favorite um, is the the crisp the glass cat, the gr- crystal cat. I liked her. Okay, I I, I liked the the little the, the the Weebly. I think it was called the, the, the Wheelies. The, the beetle guy. Yeah. The beetle guy is the wobble wobble bug. Yes. Really? See, he was H- fun. <laughs> he was kind of fun. He does um pontificate if i remember correctly he's kind Correct. of a, a highly educated he was very verbose and i also like uh what's it jill uh, the girl that was in command of the the one that originally captures them later on ginger um, spoiler general spoiler. Gen- yeah. yeah spoiler yeah. general ginger <laughs> yeah yeah she seems like a she she had a couple anger issues right oh yeah she but got then angry. again she, she yeah, it, the whole idea behind that army was funny to me. So it's it's a feminist army, isn't it? I mean, kind of, but kind of not. They were kind of. He doesn't like completely bring home social issues, but he just pokes at them. I find as yeah. a writer, which I enjoyed as a child, because I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. You know what I mean? Like you, you're not hearing a lecture on it. But it's interesting. You're just like, oh. I, I, think, I, I would talk about it more, but it'd be spoilery. So, <laughs> I, Well, see, I don't... I just like to talk about what I remember. And I think I remember she um, talked about well, women's work and things like that. A little bit... Just to touch feminists kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, but she not, was talking about that. She, they, wanted to be, they wanted to be free of doing dishes and, and, yeah. and cleaning up and, and cooking. Yeah. But then again... And, and the undertone of the army was all about once they got into the city, it was all like, oh, yay, we can clean up and do dishes. We can cook again. <laughs> it's like, yeah. really? <laughs> really? Really, guys? Okay. Yeah. I, I think she's a character later in this, but I'm not sure. Um, if not, the, this book, the second book. But, um, all right. Well, let's give the, the Marvelous Land of Oz chapter six. So let's do that and... That's a good 13 minutes, so let's get rid of that. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Marvelous Land of Oz by L. Frank Baum Chapter 6 Jack Pumpkinhead's Ride to the Emerald City At daybreak, Tip was awakened by the pumpkin head. He rubbed the sleep from his eyes, bathed in a little brook, and then ate a portion of his bread and cheese. Having thus prepared for a new day, the boy said, Let us start at once. Nine miles is quite a distance, but we ought to reach the Emerald City by noon if no accidents happen. So the pumpkin head was again perched upon the back of the sawhorse, and the journey was resumed. 
tipped noticed that the purple tint of the grass and trees had now faded to a dull lavender, and before long this lavender appeared to take on a greenish tinge that gradually brightened as they drew nearer to the great city where the scarecrow ruled. The little party had traveled but a short two miles upon their way when the road of yellow brick was parted by a broad and swift river. Tip was puzzled how to cross over, but after a time he discovered a man in a ferry boat approaching from the other side of the stream. When the man reached the bank, Tip asked, Will you row us to the other side? Yes, if you have money, returned the ferryman, whose face looked cross and disagreeable. But I have no money. None at all, inquired the man. None at all, answered the boy. Then I'll not break my back rowing you over. "'said the ferryman decidedly. "'What a nice man!' remarked the pumpkin-head smilingly. "'The ferryman stared at him but made no reply. "'Tip was trying to think, for it was a great disappointment to him "'to find his journey so suddenly brought to an end. "'I must certainly get to the Emerald City,' he said to the boatman. "'But how can I cross the river if you do not take me?' "'The man laughed.' and it was not a nice laugh. <laughs> the wooden horse will float, he said, and you can ride him across. As for the pumpkin-headed loon who accompanies you, let him sink or swim. It won't matter greatly which. Don't worry about me, said Jack, smiling pleasantly upon the crabbed ferryman. I'm sure I ought to float beautifully. Tip thought the experiment was worth making and the sawhorse, who did not know what danger meant, offered no objections whatever. So the boy led it down into the water and climbed upon its back. Jack also waded in up to his knees and grasped the tail of the horse so that he might keep his pumpkin head above the water. Now, said Tip, instructing the sawhorse, if you wiggle your legs you will probably swim, and if you swim we shall probably reach the other side. The sawhorse at once began to wiggle its legs, which acted as oars, and moved the adventurers slowly across the river to the opposite side. So successful was the trip, that presently they were climbing, wet and dripping, up the grassy bank. Tip's trouser legs and shoes were thoroughly soaked, but the sawhorse had floated so perfectly that from his knees up the boy was entirely dry. As for the pumpkin head, every stitch of his gorgeous clothing was dripping wet. "'The sun will soon dry us,' said Tip. "'And anyhow, we are now safely across, in spite of the ferryman, and can continue our journey.' "'I didn't mind the swimming at all,' remarked the horse. "'Nor did I,' added Jack. They soon regained the road of yellow brick, which proved to be a continuation of the road they had left on the other side. And then Tip once more mounted the pumpkin head upon the back of the sawhorse. "'If you ride fast,' he said, "'the wind will help to dry your clothing. I will hold on to the horse's tail and run after you. In this way we will become dry in a very short time.' "'Then the horse must step lively,' said Jack. "'I'll do my best,' returned the sawhorse cheerfully. Tip grasped the end of the branch that served as tail to the sawhorse, and called loudly, "'Get up!' The horse started at a good pace, and Tip followed behind. Then he decided they could go faster, so he shouted, Trot! 
Now the sawhorse remembered that this word was the command to go as fast as he could. So he began rocking along the road at a tremendous pace. And Tip had hard work, running faster than he ever had before in his life, to keep his feet. Soon he was out of breath, and although he wanted to call whoa to the horse, he found he could not get the word out of his throat. Then the end of the tail he was clutching, being nothing more than a dead branch, suddenly broke, and the next minute the boy was rolling in the dust of the road while the horse and its pumpkin-headed rider dashed on and quickly disappeared in the distance. By the time Tip had picked himself up and cleared the dust from his throat so he could say, Whoa! There was no further need of saying it, for the horse was long since out of sight. So he did the only sensible thing he could do. He sat down and took a good rest, and afterward began walking along the road. Sometime I will surely overtake them, he reflected, for the road will end at the gates of the Emerald City, and they can go no further than that. Meantime Jack was holding fast to the post, and the sawhorse was tearing along the road like a racer. Neither of them knew Tip was left behind, for the pumpkin head did not look around, and the sawhorse couldn't. As he rode, Jack noticed that the grass and trees had become a bright emerald green in color. So he guessed they were nearing the Emerald City even before the tall spires and domes came into sight. At length a high wall of green stones studded thick with emeralds loomed up before them, and fearing the sawhorse would not know enough to stop, and so might smash them both against the wall, Jack ventured the cry, Whoa! as loud as he could. So suddenly did the horse obey, that had it not been for his post, Jack would have been pitched off head foremost, and his beautiful face ruined. "'That was a fast ride, dear father!' he exclaimed, and then, hearing no reply, he turned around and discovered for the first time that Tip was not there. This apparent desertion puzzled the pumpkin head and made him uneasy. And while he was wondering what had become of the boy and what he ought to do next under such trying circumstances, the gateway in the green wall opened, and a man came out. This man was short and round, with a fat face that seemed remarkably good-natured. He was clothed all in green, and wore a high, peaked green hat upon his head, and green spectacles over his eyes. Bowing before the pumpkin head, he said, I am the guardian of the gates of the Emerald City. May I inquire who you are, and what is your business? My name is Jack Pumpkinhead, returned the other smilingly. But as to my business, I haven't the least idea in the world what it is. The guardian of the gate looked surprised and shook his head as if dissatisfied with the reply. What are you, a man or a pumpkin? he asked politely. Both, if you please, answered Jack. And this wooden horse, is it alive? questioned the guardian. The horse rolled one naughty eye upward and winked at Jack. Then it gave a prance and brought one leg down on the guardian's toes. Ouch! cried the man. I'm sorry I asked that question, but the answer is most convincing. Have you any errand, sir, in the Emerald City? It seems that I have, replied the pumpkin head seriously. 
but I can't think what it is. My father knows all about it, but he is not here. This is a strange affair, very strange, declared the guardian. But you seem harmless. Folks do not smile so delightfully when they mean mischief. As for that, said Jack, I cannot help my smile, for it is carved on my face with a jackknife. Well, come into my room, resumed the guardian, and I will see what can be done for you. So Jack rode the sawhorse through the gateway into a little room built into the wall. The guardian pulled a bell cord, and presently a very tall soldier clothed in a green uniform entered from the opposite door. This soldier carried a long green gun over his shoulder, and had lovely green whiskers that fell quite to his knees. The guardian at once addressed him, saying, Here is a strange gentleman who does not know why he has come to the Emerald City, or what he wants. Tell me, what shall we do with him? The soldier with the green whiskers looked at Jack with much care and curiosity. Finally he shook his head so positively that little waves rippled down his whiskers, and then he said, I must take him to His Majesty the Scarecrow. But what will His Majesty the Scarecrow do with him? asked the guardian of the gates. That is His Majesty's business, returned the soldier. I have troubles enough of my own. All outside troubles must be turned over to His Majesty. So put the spectacles on this fellow, and I'll take him to the royal palace. So the guardian opened a big box of spectacles and tried to fit a pair to Jack's great round eyes. I haven't a pair in stock that will really cover those eyes up, said the little man with a sigh, and your head is so big that I shall be obliged to tie the spectacles on. But why need I wear spectacles? asked Jack. It's the fashion here, said the soldier, and they'll keep you from being blinded by the glitter and the glare of the gorgeous Emerald City. Oh, exclaimed Jack, tie them on by all means. I don't wish to be blinded. Nor I, broke in the sawhorse, so a pair of green spectacles was quickly fastened over the bulging knots that served it for eyes. Then the soldier with green whiskers led them through the inner gate, and they at once found themselves in the main street of the magnificent Emerald City. Sparkling green gems ornamented the fronts of the beautiful houses, and the towers and turrets were all faced with emeralds. Even the green marble pavement glittered with precious stones, and it was indeed a grand and marvelous sight to one who beheld it for the first time. However, the pumpkin head and the sawhorse, knowing nothing of wealth and beauty, paid little attention to the wonderful sights they saw through their green spectacles. They calmly followed after the green soldier and scarcely noticed the crowds of green people who stared at them in surprise. When a green dog ran out and barked at them, the sawhorse promptly kicked it with its wooden leg and sent the little animal howling into one of the houses. But nothing more serious than this happened to interrupt their progress to the royal palace. The pumpkin head wanted to ride up the green marble steps and straight into the scarecrow's presence, but the soldier would not permit that. So Jack dismounted with much difficulty, and a servant led the sawhorse round to the rear while the soldier with the green whiskers escorted the pumpkin head into the palace by the front entrance. The stranger was left in a handsomely furnished waiting room, while the soldier went to announce him. It so happened that at this hour his majesty was at leisure, and greatly bored for want of something to do. 
so he ordered his visitor to be shown at once into his throne room. Jack felt no fear or embarrassment at meeting the ruler of this magnificent city, for he was entirely ignorant of all worldly customs. But when he entered the room, and saw for the first time his majesty the scarecrow seated upon his glittering throne, he stopped short in amazement. End chapter 6 Oh, very very nice. nice. Very nice. Thank you for all the pictures. <laughs> you are most welcome. <laughs> I got yeah. some, some of the older ones from the old school books, some from the movie. So there you go. Well, the old school books, I do not like the first illustrator for the, um, the Wizard of Oz. I love the illustrator that does book two through book 18 or book two through book 16, whatever. Um, I forget his name. I always forget his name. But he, to me, he, he was my first introduction to that Art Nouveau style. I think it's Art Nouveau kind of style, you know. And uh, I, I love those. Neely. Is it Riley? Riley. I think it's Riley that is his, the illustrator's name. I don't know. But... I'd use Google, but I can't because <laughs> my computer's already blowing up. Um, but yeah, I love that the illustrator. But the, yeah. the first the first book had a different illustrator, and it's a little choppy, like those pictures. But they're I mean they're still cute, you know. Yeah, they they they, they remind me a little bit more of like almost Victorian uh, woodcuts almost sometimes. Yeah, that's true. Um. Yeah, but that that was uh, something Ken was saying. Oh, those are golems. They're, you know, these creatures brought to life, even though it's brought to life with magic. But they're well, that's always... what a golem is. It is. Well, uh, is a golem brought to life with magic or science? Well, is Frankenstein's monster a golem? If Frankenstein's monster is a golem. He's a flesh golem brought to life mm -hmm. with electricity. In yeah. D&D terms, that's how a flesh golem is created. So mm -hmm. there you go. Yeah, yeah. So they're kind of golems, and I never thought of them this that way, but they're always happy to be alive and calling the person that got them, you know, brought them to life their father or their master, and they're they're really sweet. And um, Frankenstein's monster's not sweet. He's angry. Yeah, well, yeah, well these, creatures are, <laughs> these creatures that are being brought to life, they're brought, being brought to life with magic in a way that they've given intelligence as well. That's a true. standard golem is a mindless automaton. Oh, so yeah, so it's it doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, it only yeah. does what its creator directs. Okay. So, well, they do have intelligence when they're brought to life with the man with magic, seeing as they yeah, well, the do have magic. a vocabulary, yep. but they don't understand a lot of things. But they're still they're rolling with it, you know. That's that's well, you have to th you have to think of it as a, as a toddler. They're brought yeah. to life. They have intelligence. They just don't have the practical experience to apply the intelligence. True. So. And they do have the motor skills, unlike a toddler. So, yeah. Interesting. Concepts so you were, you were talking about W.W. Denslow. Yeah. Yeah. Denslow. He's the one you don't like. Yeah, I don't, no, not too fond. He just did the first book, to my knowledge. Right, but, and then it was like John Ray Neal is the next one. Yeah, I love him. I love him. It just makes me happy. It's just that ornate kind of um, 
Art Nouveau look that, um, you know, just... Yeah, the first guy was, was more old-fashioned, more uh, Victorian, uh, yeah. almost woodcutty looks to his. Yeah. And the next one got a little bit more fancy, look, a lot of little more fancy little flourishes. And things. Yeah, flourishes and the flowing lines and the, you know, like water or vines or and that that was my first introduction to that kind of style and i was like ooh pretty girly <laughs> but yeah i just love that illustrator um but yeah so there they are i mean i is tip just laying at the side of the ditch somewhere where's tip yeah he kind of got left behind <laughs> i don't know it's not cool what's going on um, maybe he's just a day behind, but they're not catching up. They're just like, ah, we're, we're, we're here. Wow. You know, they are yeah, like we toddlers. Have quest. We have our quest. We did it. <laughs> they don't even think of him. Um, so then like, as you, like you said, they are like toddlers. That's adorable. Um, but yeah, they're there in the Emerald City. So, which is where y'all want to be. Everybody wants to be in the in the Emerald City. Okay, what else do we have here? Where are we going on to? We did the uh, the dragon one. Um, we could find we could do the punishment of Loki. Oh, that'd be fun. Because you're you're a fan of the Norse. Uh, oh yeah. Myths, right? And I have a cat named Loki. <laughs> you do have a cat named Loki. I didn't want to say that out loud because it might be too much information. And he is very cute and sweet. And, and a mischievous. troublemaker. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, I heard he he broke a stove once. Yeah, and that was when he was still a kitten. Oh my so. gosh! Oh my gosh, kitties! Yeah, Tennessee's working on it. Tennessee's like two years old, and he's um he's just really into the acrobatics of jumping up on high things, which is adorable. I hope he, he, I hope he keeps it, you know? Yeah. You need to make them like, like cat shelves. That's what we did for he's ours. He's got cat shelves. He doesn't use those as much as we've, we've just learned that he needs to have places where he can jump up high into the windows. So we make sure he's got a ah. stairway to the window to watch. Yeah. There's some really cool, uh, like, uh, beds that you can get that have these giant suction cups on them and you can yeah. put them directly on the windows and they love those yeah that would be cute oh i just yeah, i just yeah i can't see those staying but maybe they're super super suction cups right they are they're really big they're about hmm. three inches in diameter hmm. interesting and they work really well because there's like uh there's one at the bottom and there's one on either side and they work just fine for my cats so and Loki oh. loves it. Really? Oh, that's adorable. Well, this is a quick one. This is actually only four minutes. So let's just hit this. The Punishment of Loki. See what Loki's okay. been up to. See if he's been bad. The Punishment oh, he's always of bad. Loki. <laughs> edited by Mara L. Pratt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It is Loki that has done this, thundered Thor, seizing the great hammer in his clenched fists. Nor will the gods of Asgard forgive this crime. No promise of his, no begging, 
No pleading shall save him from the punishment that belongs to him. O Baldur, Baldur, that I had slain the evil Loki ages upon ages ago, when he stole the hair from the glorious Sif, when he stole the necklace from the beautiful Freya, when he carried Idun and the apples of life away into the home of the frost giants, when he stung the dwarf and broke short the handle of my mighty hammer. Had I slain him then, the sorrow need not have come to us, O Baldur, Baldur. And the whole earth shook with the grief of Thor. The skies grew black. The wind shrieked. The lightnings flashed across the sky. His tears fell in torrents down the mountainsides. Trees were swept away, and the swollen rivers rushed and roared along their course. Never, even in the memory of the gaunt old giant at the Well of Wisdom, had such a storm of wind and rain and thunder and lightning been known. The earth people fled to the mountain caves in terror. It is the wrath of Thor, cried Loki, gasping with dread. Let me hide myself till it is over. And changing himself into a fish, he dived deep into the great seething mass of angry waters. But Thor and Odin were close upon him. The fiery eye of Thor had caught the sparkle of its shiny coat as the great fish shot down from the mountainside into the sea. Then, too, of what use was it to hide from the great, all-seeing eye of Odin? Did he not see and hear all sights and sounds? And more than that, did he not know all things even from the beginning? We will take a great net and we will drag the sea, said Odin quietly. Loki heard these words and trembled. He hid himself beneath the seaweed, but so muddy were the waters that he was driven out to breathe. The great net was spread. Held by the hands of Odin and of Thor, there was no escape for Loki. Sullenly, he allowed the net to close over him. There was no other way, for it stretched from shore to shore and from above the waters even to the ocean bed. And so, at last, because it was to be, the fish held, and Loki was in the power of the angry Thor. Come back, commanded Odin, to your own shape and size. Loki obeyed, and in his own form was born to Asgard. The angry gods fell, one and all, upon him. Not one showed pity for him. They hated him. And well they might, for had he not slain Baldur, and so loosed the power of the frost giants upon their shining city. Let him be bound, let him be bound, they cried. Let him be bound, even as the Fenris wolf is bound. Let him be bound with iron fetters. Let him be nailed to the great rocks in the sea. Let a poisonous serpent hang over him, and let the serpent drop, moment by moment, through all the time to come, his burning poison upon him. Let him lie there, chained and suffering, till the last great day. All this shall be, thundered Thor. And thus it was that the cruel, evil-hearted, peace-destroyer Loki suffered ages upon ages of punishment for his malice and his crime. End of The Punishment of Loki, edited by Mara L. Pratt. Good, we get to have it every day.
will make us strong and it takes the job. Hooray! It's good for growing babies and grown up too to eat. For all the family's breakfast, you can see cream of wheat. You cannot beat cream of wheat. It's true. I'd rather have oatmeal, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I can see your oatmeal. You know yeah, it's it, it's a it's a consistency th thing. The texture of cream of wheat just makes me gag. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like grits? No. no. Same thing. Same thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting into that uh, oatmeal in yogurt overnight. Then you wake up in the morning and it's already it's cold, but it's good. Yeah, like, oatmeal's great. It's yeah, it's, it's yummy. I like oatmeal. But this way you don't have to cook the oatmeal. You just put the oatmeal in yogurt, leave it overnight. Yogurt. Oh, and oats. Yeah. So it absorbs the moisture. Yeah. That works. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Well, it's sweet. So I like that. But uh, it seemed like everyone was jonesing for a cream of wheat thing. So, uh. Yeah. You put some really, really old lads and I'm, I'm still cringing at them. I'm like, these just suck. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, they're awful. I'm not into it. But, um, I have yet to have some cream of wheat. I just have the expired box of cream of wheat. I keep thinking I'm going to make it. But then I'm like, well, Ew. yeah. Compost it. Put it in your compost. <laughs> Actually, that would be really good in my compost. I'm, I'm into the compost lately. Just throwing all my grape vines and stupid stuff in there. Cucumber yep. peelings, you know, all that stuff. Mine's, mine's getting filled up with bananas lately. <laughs> Banana, Banana peels. <laughs> Banana peels, yeah. Um, but yeah, what do you think of the uh, the Loki, the Loki story? That is really interesting. It's like a really, really evil version of waterboarding. <laughs> <laughs> having a having a serpent's venom dripping onto you for a millennia. That's mm -hmm. not fun. It's not. You know, one of my favorite um, goddess figures is Freya, you know, and um, I just yeah, she's cool. don't know why there aren't more stories about her. It just seems like she's just like, yeah, they're the goddess of love. We don't care. We want we thunder and mischief, you know? Yeah, well, it's, it's North mythology. It's all about the, the male testosterone. You know, the women were, were, were by players, just like in yeah. the same in Greek. Roman mythology, all of those, all of the, um, the, the male-centric mm -hmm. mythologies, the women all play secondary roles. Yeah. Well, I find her to be a fascinating creature because not only is she the goddess of love, but she has a, a carriage drawn by cats, and that's awesome, obviously. Um, yeah. It beats a, a chariot drawn by goats, which is Thor's, who he kills regularly and eats them. It's horrible. <laughs> oh, he does? That's awful. See? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I do like the character because, of Odin. And go ahead. Because the goats regenerate in the morning. Oh. So and that makes it right. That <laughs> makes it okay to torture his own goats. Yeah. Oh, Thor. You boys will be boys. Okay. <laughs> enough of that hey yeah. he's got free re regenerating goats what does he care if he causes pain 
Yeah. You know? Well, he's he he's also a jerk to other people too. But yeah, he's a he's a jerk. Oh yeah, Thor's Thor's not as the Marvel universe depicts him. Thor, yeah. Thor in the Norse mythology, he's an ass. Well, yeah. uh, they always. I think they're trying to contrast him because Loki is the god of mischief, and when you're the god of mischief, that's a big title to live up to. But so, you have a lot of fun doing yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, they they. I think that the Marvel. Sometimes they make them make him very naughty. Well, also, you know, the Christian religion did a lot to reframe Loki as a devil. So, yeah. you know, yeah. they, they, they portrayed him as a bad guy. And a lot of that influenced a lot of the, the way he was portrayed, even in, you know, people um, translating the works. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got that dynamic dualism. Christianity has that dualism they must beat into the ground constantly. Yes. Which uh, is not as apparent in other places. There aren't so many blacks and whites and whites and blacks. A lot of it's gray. Um, yep. But there's more gray. It's it's kind of an interesting, more of an interesting story. So here we have your choice: a Japanese vampire cat, a Russian Baba Yaga. Which would you prefer? They both oh, I seem have to kind go of with a vampire kitty. Yeah. Oh, Vampire Kitty? Yeah, I'm curious, too. Or how Thor the God got his hammer. We could go there, but not, not no, after the, no. We, we want to know more about Vampire Kitties. Yes. Because kitties and vampires. I mean, it's it's. I'm, I'm kind of like blowing it up. It could be a bad story for all I know. I haven't listened to it. But we're going to try it. It's 14 minutes. So here we go. Oops, wait. Section 31 of Tales of Old Japan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. Tales of Old Japan by Lord Reedsdale. Section 31 The Vampire Cat of Nabashima. There is a tradition in the Nabeshima family that many years ago the prince of Haitzen was bewitched and cursed by a cat that had been kept by one of his retainers. This prince had in his house a lady of rare beauty, called Otoyo. Amongst all his ladies she was a favorite, and there was none who could rival her charms and accomplishments. One day the prince went out into the garden with Otoyo, and remained enjoying the fragrance of the flowers until sunset, when they returned to the palace never noticing that they were being followed by a large cat. Having parted with her lord, Otoyo retired to her own room and went to bed. At midnight she awoke with a start, and became aware of a huge cat that crouched watching her, and when she cried out the beast sprang on her, and, fixing its cruel teeth in her delicate throat, throttled her to death. What a piteous end for so fair a dame, the darling of her prince's heart, to die suddenly, bitten to death by a cat. Then the cat, having scratched out a grave under the veranda, buried the corpse of Otoyo, and assuming her form began to bewitch the prince. But my lord the prince knew nothing of all this, and little thought that the beautiful creature who caressed and followed him was an impish and foul beast that had slain his mistress and assumed her shape in order to drain out his life's blood. Day by day, as time went on, the prince's strength dwindled away. The color of his face was changed and became pale and livid, and he was as a man suffering from a deadly sickness. Seeing this, his counselors and his wife became greatly alarmed, so they summoned the physicians, who prescribed various remedies for him, 
but the more medicine he took the more serious did his illness appear and no treatment was of any avail but most of all did he suffer in the night-time when his sleep would be troubled and disturbed by hideous dreams in consequence of this his counsellors nightly appointed a hundred of his retainers to sit up and watch over him but strange to say toward ten o'clock on the very first night that the watch was set the guard were seized with a sudden and unaccountable drowsiness which they could not resist until one by one every man had fallen asleep then the false otoyo came in and harassed the prince until morning the following night the same thing occurred and the prince was subjected to the imp's tyranny while his guards slept helplessly around him night after night this was repeated until at last three of the prince's counsellors determined themselves to sit up on guard and see whether they could overcome this mysterious drowsiness but they fared no better than the others and by ten o'clock were fast asleep the next day the three counsellors held a solemn conclave and their chief one isahaya butsen said this is a marvellous thing that a guard of a hundred men should thus be overcome by sleep of a surety the spell that is upon my lord and upon his guard must be the work of witchcraft now as all our efforts are of no avail let us seek out ruiten the chief priest of the temple called miyo-in and beseech him to put up prayers for the recovery of my lord and the other counsellors approving what isahaya butsen had said they went to the priest ruiten and engaged him to recite litanies that the prince might be restored to health so it came to pass that ruiten the chief priest of miyo-in offered up prayers nightly for the prince one night at the ninth hour midnight when he had finished his religious exercises and was preparing to lie down to sleep he fancied that he heard a noise outside in the garden as if someone were washing himself at the well deeming this passing strange he looked down from the window and there in the moonlight he saw a handsome young soldier some twenty-four years of age washing himself who when he had finished cleaning himself and had put on his clothes stood before the figure of buddha and prayed fervently for the recovery of my lord the prince ruiten looked on with admiration and the young man when he had made an end of his prayer was going away but the priest stopped him calling out to him sir i pray you to tarry a little i have something to say to you at your reverence's service what may you please to want pray be so good as to step up here and have a little talk by your reverence's leave and with this he went upstairs then Ruiten said, Sir, I cannot conceal my admiration that you, being so young a man, should have so loyal a spirit. I am Ruiten, the chief priest of this temple, who am engaged in praying for the recovery of my lord. Pray, what is your name? My name, sir, is Ito Soda, and I am serving in the infantry of Nabashima. Since my lord has been sick, my one desire has been to assist in nursing him, but, being only a simple soldier, I am not of sufficient rank to come into his presence so i have no resource but to pray to the gods of the country and to buddha that my lord may regain his health when ruiten heard this he shed tears in admiration of the fidelity of ito soda and said your purpose is indeed a good one but what a strange sickness this is that my lord is afflicted with every night he suffers from horrible dreams and the retainers who sit up with him are all seized with a mysterious sleep so that no one can keep awake it is very wonderful yes replied soda after a moment's reflection this certainly must be witchcraft if i could but obtain leave to sit up one night with the prince i would fain see whether i could not resist this drowsiness and detect the goblin at last the priest said i am in relations of friendship with isahaya butsen the chief counsellor of the prince i will speak to him of you and of your loyalty and will intercede with him that you may attain your wish 
Indeed, sir, I am most thankful. I am not prompted by any vain thought of self-advancement, should I succeed. All I wish for is the recovery of my lord. I commend myself to your kind favor. Well, then, tomorrow night I will take you with me to the counselor's house. Thank you, sir, and farewell. And so they parted. On the following evening Ito Soda returned to the temple Mio-in, and having found Rui Ten, accompanied him to the house of Isahaya Butsen. Then the priest, leaving Soda outside, went in to converse with the counsellor and inquire after the prince's health. And pray, sir, how is my lord? Is he in any better condition since I have been offering up prayers for him? Indeed, no. His illness is very severe. We are certain that he must be the victim of some foul sorcery. But as there are no means of keeping a guard awake after ten o'clock, we cannot catch a sight of the goblin, so we are in the greatest trouble. I feel deeply for you. It must be most distressing. However, I have something to tell you. I think that I have found a man who will detect the goblin, and I have brought him with me. Indeed, who is the man? Well, he is one of my lord's foot-soldiers, named Ito Soda, a faithful fellow, and I trust that you will grant his request to be permitted to sit up with my lord. Certainly. It is wonderful to find so much loyalty and zeal in a common soldier, replied Isahaya Butsen, after a moment's reflection. Still, it is impossible to allow a man of such low rank to perform the office of watching over my lord. It is true that he is but a common soldier, urged the priest, but why not raise his rank in consideration of his fidelity, and then let him mount guard? It would be time enough to promote him after my lord's recovery. But come, let me see this Ito Soda, that I may know what manner of man he is. If he pleases me, I will consult with the other counsellors, and perhaps we may grant his request. I will bring him in forthwith, replied Ruten, who thereupon went out to fetch the young man. When he returned, the priest presented Ito Soda to the counsellor, who looked at him attentively, and, being pleased with his comely and gentle appearance, said, So I hear that you are anxious to be permitted to mount guard in my lord's room at night. Well, I must consult with the other counsellors, and we will see what can be done for you. When the young soldier heard this he was greatly elated, and took his leave, after warmly thanking Buiten, who had helped him to gain his object. The next day the counsellors held a meeting, and sent for Ito Soda, and told him that he might keep watch with the other retainers that very night. So he went his way in high spirits, and at nightfall he made all his preparations, took his place among the hundred gentlemen who were on duty in the prince's bedroom. Now the prince slept in the center of the room, and the hundred guards around him sat keeping themselves awake with entertaining conversation and pleasant conceits. But as ten o'clock approached, they began to doze off as they sat, and in spite of all their endeavors to keep one another awake, by degrees they all fell asleep. Ito Soda all this while felt an irresistible desire to sleep creeping over him, and though he tried by all sorts of ways to rouse himself, he saw that there was no help for it but by resorting to an extreme measure, for which he had already made his preparations. Drawing out a piece of oil paper which he had brought with him, and spreading it over the mats, he sat down upon it. Then he took the small knife which he carried in the sheath of his dirk, and stuck it into his own thigh. For a while the pain of the wound kept him awake, but as the slumber by which he was assailed was a work of sorcery, little by little he became drowsy again. Then he twisted the knife round and round in his thigh, so that the pain became very violent. He was proof against the feeling of sleepiness, and kept a faithful watch. Now the oil paper which he had spread under his legs was in order to prevent the blood, which might spurt from his wound, from defiling the mats. So Ito Soda remained awake, but the rest of the guard slept, 
and as he watched, suddenly the sliding doors of the prince's room were drawn open, and he saw a figure coming in stealthily, and, as it drew nearer, the form was that of a marvelously beautiful woman, some twenty-three years of age. Cautiously she looked around her, and when she saw that all the guard were asleep, she smiled an ominous smile, and was going up to the prince's bedside when she perceived that in one corner of the room there was a man yet awake. This seemed to startle her, but she went up to Soda and said, "'I am not used to seeing you here. Who are you?' "'My name is Ito Soda, and this is the first night that I have been on guard. A troublesome office, truly. Why, here are all the rest of the guard asleep.' How is it that you alone are awake? You are a trusty watchman. There is nothing to boast about. I must sleep myself, fast and sound. What is that wound on your knee? It is all red with blood. Oh, I felt very sleepy, so I stuck my knife into my thigh, and the pain of it has kept me awake. What wondrous loyalty, said the lady. Is it not the duty of a retainer to lay down his life for his master? Is such a scratch as this worth thinking about? Then the lady went up to the sleeping prince and said, How fares it with my lord to-night? But the prince, worn out with sickness, made no reply. But Soda was watching her eagerly and guessed that it was Otoyo, and made up his mind that if she attempted to harass the prince he would kill her on the spot. The goblin, however, which in the form of Otoyo had been tormenting the prince every night, and had come again that night for no other purpose, was defeated by the watchfulness of Ito Soda. For whenever she drew near to the sick man, thinking to put her spells upon him, she would turn and look behind her, and there she saw Ito Soda glaring at her. So she had no help for it but to go away again, and leave the prince undisturbed. At last the day broke, and the other officers, when they awoke and opened their eyes, saw that Ito Soda had kept awake by stabbing himself in the thigh, and they were greatly ashamed, and went home crestfallen. That morning Ito Soda went to the house of Isahaya Butsen, and told him all that had occurred the previous night. The counsellors were all loud in their praises of Ito Soda's behaviour, and ordered him to keep watch again that night. At the same hour the false Otoyo came and looked all round the room, and all the guard were asleep, excepting Ito Soda, who was wide awake, and so, being again frustrated, she returned to her own apartments. Now as since Soda had been on guard the prince had passed quiet nights. His sickness began to get better, and there was great joy in the palace, and Soda was promoted and rewarded with an estate. In the meanwhile Otoyo, seeing that her nightly visits bore no fruits, kept away, and from that time forth the night guard were no longer subject to fits of drowsiness. This coincidence struck Soda as very strange, so he went to Isahaya Butsen and told him that of a certainty this Otoyo was no other than a goblin. Isahaya Butsen reflected for a while and said, Well then, how shall we kill the foul thing? I will go to the creature's room, as if nothing were the matter, and try to kill her. But in case she should try to escape, I will beg you to order eight men to stop outside and lie in wait for her. Having agreed upon this plan, Soda went at nightfall to Otoyo's apartment, pretending to have been sent with a message from the prince. When she saw him arrive, she said, What message have you brought me from my lord? Oh, nothing in particular. Be so kind as to look at this letter. And as he spoke, he drew near to her, and suddenly drawing his dirk, cut at her. But the goblin, springing back, seized a halberd, and glaring fiercely at Soda, said, How dare you behave like this to one of your lord's ladies? I will have you dismissed. And she tried to strike Soda with the halberd. But Soda fought desperately with his dirk, and the goblin, seeing that she was no match for him, threw away the halberd, and from a beautiful woman became suddenly transformed into a cat, which, springing up the sides of the room, jumped on to the roof. 
Isa Hayabutsen and his eight men who were watching outside shot at the cat but missed it, and the beast made good its escape. So the cat fled to the mountains, and did much mischief among the surrounding people, until at last the prince of Haitsen ordered a great hunt, and the beast was killed. But the prince recovered from his sickness, and Ito Soda was richly rewarded. End of section 31 It's Tuesday, April 20, 2021. This is a frightening report. UN Global Climate Assessment warns climate change and sea level rise are accelerating. U.S. and China agree to cooperate on climate action. Plus... How about the 40,000 people plus that's lost their jobs in this industry... Just in about 10 years. Nation's largest coal mining union backs shift from coal mining to renewable energy jobs. All of those exciting shifts and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Hi, I'm Kevin McCarthy. Hi. Welcome to the Energy Innovation Agenda. <laughs> oh, he meant that. Democrats often dismiss Republicans as being disinterested in addressing global climate change. This is just false. Well, that's true. If by false, he means true. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, does Republican Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy realize that gaslighting is not an actual energy source? <laughs> Apparently not. Let the gaslighting begin. Begin? Will it ever end? So let's start here. With real news. Yes. Go ahead. We've got a big climate week this week. On Earth Day, on Thursday, President Joe Biden will host a two-day virtual Leaders Summit on Climate to try to regain credibility among the international community that the U.S. is back and ready to work on climate action for reals this time. That sounds virtually exciting. <laughs> Based on Biden's American jobs plan to transition the U.S. economy away from fossil fuels. Plus... The White House also hopes to push other countries to ratchet up their targets for cutting greenhouse gas emissions that cause the climate crisis. Associated Press summarized Biden's tricky task as, quote, how to put forward a non-binding but symbolic goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that will have a tangible impact on climate change efforts not only in the U.S. but throughout the world. That's a lot of words. Speaking of around the world, a pretty big diplomatic development in advance of the summit, the U.S. and China on Sunday formally agreed to cooperate on climate change, a crucial agreement between the world's two biggest emitters amid rising tensions between the two countries. That's big news. The joint statement reads, quote, both sides recognize climate change is a serious and urgent threat to the survival and development of mankind, and both countries will, quote, continue to discuss concrete actions in the 2020s to reduce emissions aimed at keeping the Paris Agreement aligned temperature limit within reach. Nice. And it matters because on Monday, the World Meteorological Organization released its annual State of the Global Climate Report. The report finds that climate change did not stop for COVID-19, but the pandemic exacerbated the challenges of extreme
extreme weather, food and water insecurity, and the displacement of vulnerable populations in developing countries. Sea level rise and ocean acidification are accelerating, and 2020 saw new records in droughts, wildfires, and extreme heat waves. In a press conference, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on developed countries to help developing countries adapt to climate impacts and do more to cut their own emissions, saying this is a make-or-break year to confront the global climate emergency. Anthropogenic climate change, climate disruption caused by human activities, human decisions and human folly. And the effects are disastrous. This is truly a pivotal year for humanity's future. And this report shows we have no time to waste. Fakest accent I've ever heard. Here in the U.S., the nation's largest coal miners union on Monday said they would accept President Biden's American jobs plan to transition the nation away from coal and other fossil fuels in exchange for a, quote, true energy transition. Really? With new renewable energy jobs and investment in their communities, including development of technology to capture carbon emissions from coal plants. Union President President Cecil Roberts said ensuring jobs for displaced miners, including 7,000 coal workers who lost their jobs in just the last year, is crucial to any infrastructure bill taken up by Congress. I think we need to provide a future for those people, a future for anybody that loses their job because of a transition in this country, regardless of its coal oil, gas, or any other industry for that matter. Wow, though this is big news. The Coal Miners Union is saying... We're cool with giving up our jobs so long as you give us other ones to replace them. Exactly. Big news. Finally, Interior Secretary Deb Holland on Friday revoked a number of Trump-era orders that expanded fossil fuel development on the public's lands, calling them, quote, inconsistent with the department's commitment to protect public health, conserve land, water, and wildlife, and elevate science. Among those actions, Holland revoked Trump's rollback of a moratorium on federal coal leasing and revoked his orders to expand oil drilling in Alaska's National Petroleum Reserve, and she moved to make climate change a priority in agency decisions. Nice! Let the revoking continue. (laughs) For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. That's the song I'm always singing when I'm coming through the door in Tennessee, trying to get out the door. Get back. Get back. Get back. They do like to escape, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He wants to, but he wants to because my girlfriend, cat, my girlfriend, cat, my girl cat's afraid of him. She's getting better. It's been a year. I mean, it's been a year. (laughs) They keep separate, but they get to go in each other's territory and smell each other so they know each other exists and they huh. it, it's okay um it's just uh, drama. Moon, our older female she actually yeah. beat on beat up on loki when he was a kitten yeah and once uh loki got bigger now he's now now they've reached a, a, a detente they both mm-hmm. beat up on each other it's awful <laughs> it's awful it's not a playful thing, yeah. No, it, it, it's a, it's a full-out blood feud. Oh, gosh. 
It's a darn shame. I mean, I understand some cats would never like each other, but it seems obvious he likes her. And she's so afraid of him, she peed herself once running away from him. And I was like, oh, man, this is some very primal fear we're dealing with. So, yeah. Yeah, but, but vampire kitties are even more fun. Vampire kitties are fun. But he killed... He killed what the king's mistress at the beginning. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, it it. A lot of the Japanese tales, um, yeah, are very. Uh, they're 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 very sweet and sour. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Oh, here's the kiddo. In oh, history, nice. Volume two. Okay. Wow. I can't read that. Bifocals. George Washington crossed the Delaware. Mike. Very <sighs> nice. Look at all oh, that detail. No. The kiddo was such a great guy helping America. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, but he didn't, he didn't save the one guy that went overboard, it looks like, that's clinging well, on to the oar. <laughs> he'll be fine. He, he's he's one of the tougher ones, you know. He's not like a person yes. of today that doesn't know how to swim. People, learn how to swim. Your forefathers knew how to swim. Why not? You never know when kiddo's going to jump you, dump you out of a boat. Right? That's why you should learn how to swim. But yeah, that's adorable. Oh, that's I an love action, it. an action picture. You know? But, uh, yeah, so we went through kiddo and, uh, kiddo and, uh, vampire kitties and, uh, the Green News Report, so we're in good shape. Oh, we only have seven minutes left. Wow. So, sometimes you gotta break a couple eggs to make an omelet, kiddo says. Yes. <laughs> He's like, you know, sorry, it happened. I dropped some guy overboard. It's okay. He's not, nobody died, right? He's not too upset. He's rolling with it. So, yeah, I'm looking to see if there's another short story, but I don't, I don't think there is. I could throw, oh, I could throw in Baba Yaga for seven minutes. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah? Well, yeah, be coming it close. Um, Let's just, do it. Just to let you know, if, if anybody fell off the boat and at the crossing of George Washington, it was in December, so they're going to be pretty damn cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know... Kiddo could probably pick him up with his tail. All right, let's do yes. the Russian story of Baba Yaga. Let's go. Maybe we'll have time to do it up, too. The Baba Yaga from Russian Folk Tales, a choice collection of Muscovite folklore by W.R.S. Ralston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Baba Yaga Once upon a time, there was an old couple. The husband lost his wife and married again, but he had a daughter by the first marriage, a young girl, and she found no favor in the eyes of her evil stepmother, who used to beat her and consider how she could get her killed outright. One day, the father went away somewhere or other, so the stepmother said to the girl, "'Go to your aunt, my sister,' and ask her for a needle and thread to make you a shift. Now the aunt was a Baba Yaga. Well, the girl was no fool, 
So she went to a real aunt of hers first, and says she, Good morning, auntie. Good morning, my dear. What have you come for? Mother has sent me to her sister to ask for a needle and thread to make me a shift. Then her aunt instructed her what to do. There is a birch tree there, niece, which would hit you in the eye. You must tie a ribbon round it. There are doors which would creak and bang. You must pour oil on their hinges. There are dogs which would tear you in pieces. You must throw them these rolls. There is a cat which would scratch your eyes out. You must give it a piece of bacon. So the girl went away and walked and walked till she came to the place. There stood a hut, and in it sat weaving the Baba Yaga, the bony shanks. Good morning, auntie, says the girl. Good morning, my dear, replies the Baba Yaga. Mother has sent me to ask you for a needle and thread to make me a shift. Very well, sit down and weave a little in the meantime. So the girl sat down behind the loom, and the Baba Yaga went outside and said to her servant maid, Go and head to the bath and get my niece washed, and mind you look sharp after her. I want to breakfast off her. Well, the girl sat there in such a fright that she was as much dead as alive. Presently she spoke imploringly to the servant maid, saying, Kinswoman, dear, do please with the firewood instead of making it burn, and fetch the water for the bath in a sieve. And she made her a present of a handkerchief. The Baba Yaga waited a while, then she came to the window and asked, Are you weaving, niece? Are you weaving, my dear? Oh, yes, dear aunt, I'm weaving. So the Baba Yaga went away again, and the girl gave the cat a piece of bacon and asked, Is there no way of escaping from here? Here's a come for you and a towel, said the cat. Take them and be off. The Baba Yaga will pursue you, but you must lay your ear on the ground, and when you hear that she is close at hand, first of all throw down the towel. It will become a wide, wide river, and if the Baba Yaga gets across the river and tries to catch you, then you must lay your ear on the ground again, and when you hear that she is closer at hand, throw down the comb. It will become a dense, dense forest. Through that she won't be able to force her way anyhow. The girl took the towel and the comb and fled. The dogs would have rent her, but she threw them the rolls and they let her go by. The doors would have begun to bang, but she poured oil on the hinges and they let her pass through. The birch tree would have poked her eyes out, but she tied the ribbon round it and it let her pass on. And the cat sat down to the loom and worked away, muddled everything about, if it didn't do much weaving. Up came the Baba Yaga to the window and asked, Are you weaving, niece? Are you weaving, my dear? I'm weaving, dear aunt, I'm weaving, gruffly replied the cat. The Baba Yaga rushed into the hut, so that the girl was gone and took to beating the cat and abusing it for not having scratched the girl's eyes out. Long as I've served you, said the cat, you've never given me so much as a bone, 
but she gave me bacon. Then the Baba Yaga pounced upon the dogs, on the doors, on the birch tree, and on the servant maid, and set to work to abuse them all and to knock them about. Then the dogs said to her, Long as we've served you, you've never so much as pinched us a burnt crust, but she gave us rolls to eat. And the doors said, Long as we've served you, you've never poured even a drop of water on our hinges, but she poured oil on us. The birch tree said, Long as I've served you, you've never tied a single thread round me, but she fastened a ribbon around me. And the servant maid said, Long as I've served you, you've never given me so much as a rag, but she gave me a handkerchief. The Baba Yaga, bony of limb, quickly jumped into her mortar, set it flying along the pestle, sweeping away the while all traces of its flight with a broom, and set off in pursuit of the girl. Then the girl put her ear on the ground, and when she heard that the Baba Yaga was chasing her and was now close at hand, she flung down the towel, and it became a wide, such a wide river. Up came the Baba Yaga to the river and gnashed her teeth with spite. Then she went home for her oxen and drove them into the river. The oxen drank up every drop of the river, and then the Baba Yaga began the pursuit anew. But the girl put her ear to the ground again, and when she heard that the Baba Yaga was near, she flung down the comb, and instantly a forest sprang up, such an awfully thick one. The Baba Yaga began gnawing away at it, but however hard she worked, she couldn't gnaw her way through it, so she had to go back again. But by this time the girl's father had returned home, and he asked, Where's my daughter? She's gone to her aunt's, replied her stepmother. Soon afterwards the girl herself came running home. Where have you been? asked her father. Ah, father, she said, mother sent me to aunt's to ask for a needle and thread to make me a shift, but aunt's a Baba Yaga and she wanted to eat me. And how did you get away, daughter? Why, like this, said the girl and explained the whole matter. As soon as her father had heard all about it, he became wroth with his wife and shot her. But he and his daughter lived on and flourished and everything went well with them. End of the Baba Yaga Recorded by Simona Rus. Yes, yes, yes. Excellent. I love her accent, too. It's lovely. In that... Yeah, that's actually a short version. Um, yeah, cause there's, super they, short. They didn't have the three horsemen that was in the Baba Yaga I am most familiar with. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should find a, a better version. That would be... It would no, be it's nice. cool, though. I'm just letting it's you know quick. there's another version out there. Where we put, oh, there's yeah. There's probably a more protracted version. So. Totally, totally. It was just a, the one I found. So, yeah, um, that's it. We're a couple minutes over, but hey, that's, that's okay. It's kind of cool. Um, yeah, it happens to the best of us. Um, but yeah, it came from Cleveland Friday night. Looking forward to listening to it. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have Sandra D. She's our birthday one of our birthday girls for that uh, that that day, and um, we're mm-hmm. gonna be doing Dunwich Horror. You know, some Cthulhu Lovecraft mythos, mm. really really creepy stuff. Yeah, 
That's fun stuff, yeah. Did you watch the new um, Lovecraft? Um, Lovecraft Country? Not yet. Yeah. It's kind of neat. I liked it. I don't know. I, I mean, it's one of those things. Where I might want to watch it again. I don't know. Like, I I found it to be just... um. I don't know. It, it was. It was. There was. I liked the side stories. I liked. Um, I liked the action. Sometimes there's too many actions. There's not too many actions and car chases. Well, because it's a lot retro in the past and stuff. But I, I just thought it was a neat story, you know. And I, I was. I was riveted. So, yeah, I, I had yeah, to gird myself it. to watch it because I. Um, I've been a little bit burned out with like the boys and the Watchmen. Yeah. Just because there's so much racial tension and so much there is current stuff in those. Yeah. Even though there's some of them are like in the past. It's just it's still like mm-hmm. it browbeat me down. So Yeah, um, I can see it. Yeah. I can we're see waiting it, but I a really, little bit. I really liked it. I really and and the costuming is cute. Like the outfits are cute. And it's it's kinda cool and I think it's cool and sexy. But I don't know. You see what you like. But, um, yeah. So yeah, we're it came watch from it. Cleveland. Friday. 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 Yes. Um, so that'll be a good time. But uh, let's sign off. And uh, yep, yep. I'll start playing that outro music. And I hope you enjoyed all the stories today. And uh, your journey to Oz. And um, the Emerald City. And uh, yeah. Everything else that happened. Yeah, what, yep. what other help stuff? It's just stuff. Yeah, and join, join Fairy Lights and Fairy Nights another night. Yeah. Please do. We'll be here on Thursday. We might be cutting back on Tuesday because I have I have to ride dragon boats soon. So, oh, nice. Yeah. We're just uh, doing some repairs right now on the boats. But uh, it came from Cleveland on Friday. Be there. I'll be in the chat room. Talk to you guys later. Fairy Lights for Fairy Nights. It's a blast bringing this stuff to you. Radioforhumans.com.